This is a Founding Media podcast. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Great Society, a podcast about people who are working to elevate the voices of others. I'm your host, Constance Dykusen. Today, we're flipping the script. The guest is me. My friend Jessica Godot, academic, writer, and entrepreneur, interviews me about my work. We talked about storytelling, creating opportunities, and the time a baboon hijacked my car. Um, and now here's my conversation with Jessica. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Great Society. I'm your host, Constance Dykusen. I'm here with my friend, author, and entrepreneur, Jessica Godot. Thanks for coming, Jessica. I'm so excited. Um, I'm really excited about today because Jessica is actually going to be interviewing me a little about my work. But first, I have some questions for you. Okay. Um, I wanted to start with how we met. I was living in Thailand. It must have been 2010, I guess. I feel like, yeah, 2010, 2011. I was in my neighborhood fish ponds where they would grow fish uh, (laughs) running around the fish ponds. And I look over and somebody had just gone out of the car and it was a white woman and there weren't very many people in my town who were white. So I was like, who's that woman? What's happening? What's happening? And so I walked over and I met you and it turns out that you were from Austin, Texas. Yes. um, My favorite thing about you is that you know everyone that there is to know. So (laughs) we began the conversation with, oh, I have these friends. You're like, actually, that's my best friend. And pretty much we've played that game since then. And I have yet to go to a place where I don't know at least two people who obscurely, like never the people that you expect, are like, oh yeah, Constance Dykusen. I know her. Oh, well. Um, So it was such a treat to meet you there. And then when I moved back to Austin a few months later, I think we started working together. Mm -hmm. Um, You were running um, a social enterprise working with refugees and Mm -hmm. I kind of showed up to kind of see what I could learn and do. And that's how we started kind of working together. Yeah. I love how you just showed up equals actually you kind of immediately took on a lot of the more (laughs) challenging aspects of that and became one of those people. I think this is one of the things that you and I both share is we value work for the sake of the work, sometimes more than we value work for the sake of the money, which can be both good and challenging. True. But true. It's, um, that there were so many opportunities for both of us. There, especially at the time, there were a lot of needs in the Burmese community that you and I both, and I feel like Nepalese and some others, and mm-hmm. we just made a lot of deep friendships with refugees and with each other. Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of how we got to be such good friends, right? Yeah. I think that was a special time in my life because it's a transitional time, but then also meeting all those people mm-hmm. and meeting you, it just kind of forged that relationship. Mm-hmm. So um, how did that work lead to um, you starting the, well, I guess you were already doing the social enterprise, but mm. then how has that led to you now becoming an author? So in about 2015, the language around refugees changed. And I, at the time, was working, I had a postdoc at Southwestern University. And I just, I have a PhD in English, um, and just got concerned about the way that people kept talking about refugees. I mean, you and I had several, and a lot of our friends in this community, too, kept saying, when you say refugee and you mean terrorist or you mean threat to our economy, you're not really understanding the the depths of the refugee resettlement process and who's coming over. So long story really short, I started writing articles and eventually got a book deal um, with, you know, uh, telling the story of one of our close friends who goes by the pseudonym Muna. And it's a story of one Burmese refugee woman. And then I've also braided it together with a story of a Syrian woman. And then a history of the refugee resettlement program, which I love geeking out about. Mm-hmm. So Constance has read a draft of some of it. And yeah, um, yeah that's going to come out. It's called After the Last Border, and it'll come out in 2020 with Viking. I'm so excited. Yeah, me too. Congratulations. Thanks. Um, and so tell me a little bit about the social enterprise. What kind of led you to this place of kind of yeah. being... Um, 
in the refugee community, knowing a little about refugees, how did that get started? I was showed up at a community center hoping to translate for Spanish and was sort of, um, I was teaching a class called The Rhetoric of Illegal Immigration and was sort of uh, weirdly trolling for people because I wanted to know more about what was actually happening on the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, I had lived in Thailand, which is why I was there um, visiting some friends when you and I met. And I saw um, a group of people while I was at this community center that looked like they came from northern Thailand. And long story really short, I ended up realizing that there were a lot of Burmese refugees here in Austin. The Burmese Refugee Resettlement Program was just beginning at the time. And there ended up being, I think, more than 70,000 Burmese refugees who were resettled in Austin, or not in Austin, in the United States in a seven-year period. So it was just like this huge program and all of these people, many of whom were pre-literate. So over time, we ended up starting an English class and then a weaving cooperative and then starting a nonprofit helping many of the women, especially the older women and the young moms who weren't able to work, um, earn supplemental income by weaving and making jewelry and stuff. And then we successfully ended when the last artisan got a job. So it was really – it was like a Band-Aid solution. And that was – stuff you and I talked about is how to – have a social uh, program that's not just about us feeling good about what we're doing, but that really centers the women whose right. work um, we're trying to support. And I think that's kind of where we bonded is not everybody is doing that. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So this is where it's really exciting because I get to ask you a lot of questions about you. And I feel like that's um, a good transition point because I do think that that is one of the big central themes of your life is that you are so conscious of wanting to make sure that people's stories are central, that you are not ever walking into spaces where there are other people um, who could speak for themselves, that we, neither of us, um, both of us have real concerns about the idea of giving a voice to the voiceless. There are lots of people that have voices and we want to help amplify and elevate those voices right. so that others can hear them. Right. And right. so um, tell us a little bit about the work that you do. What's your, what's your day job? Um, so my day job is I'm the executive director of JP's Peace, Love and Happiness Foundation, which is John Paul and Eloise DeJoria's family foundation based here in Austin. So um, I get to advise the family on charitable investments and Mm -hmm. kind of tell them things based on their personalities and their interests, things that I think they might get excited about investing in. And so really it's just about creating relationship and introducing Mm -hmm. them because that's just how how they operate. Every family foundation I think is different. Um, But just introducing them to people that they would love to to hang out with, Mm -hmm. um, that they would love to invest in and kind of um, walk alongside their organizations, hopefully for years. And so building those partnerships has been really rewarding and really great. What are some of the partnerships that you can tell us about that you're excited about? Um, So here in in town, we invest in Alan Graham's um, Mobile Loves and Fishes Mm -hmm. community first. That's been a big partnership. Um, I've had Alan on the pod. Um, Lila Igram's um, Girls Impact the World Film Festival. Uh, Louise is an is an actor and a female, and very interested in investing in the voices of young mm-hmm. filmmakers. And so, those are just two here in town that have been really great to get to know the organizations, um, see how. They, I mean, they've both grown tremendously since we've gotten involved, and not not just because we're involved, but um, just because they're their efforts that the whole community kind of gathers around. So it kind mm-hmm. of builds that community into it. And John Paul and Eloise are great leaders in that respect and show up and volunteer and, and go to the things. So it's a really great part of my life. So what's the time that you feel like the, um, like what you were able to do changed the scope of a project for some people, right? Like you, you kind of in this mm-hmm. unique position because you're able to introduce these two people and it, it yeah. really can make an impact. Yeah, I think, I mean, I was able to introduce the DeJoreys to both of those projects, Mm -hmm. and so I get really excited about that, mainly just because I get to make, um, like, I like, I'm kind of, not a people pleaser, but I like like to be helpful, I like to be useful, and so um, they just get something really great out of it, Mm -hmm. like, they get to have that relationship, and 
um, I get to introduce them to things that makes them happy, mm-hmm. makes the organization happy. Um, people's lives hopefully improve as a result of the investment. And so it's just kind of great all around. Like mm-hmm. nobody gets sad if you call <laughs> them on a Monday and tell them you're going to be sending them a check. So yeah. it's, um, it's great. It's a, and it kind of actually balances the other part of my life, which is maybe not quite so hopeful, <laughs> maybe yeah. not quite so um, – Good news. You know, like you get a car, you get a car. It's a little (laughs) bit more. um, It's kind of like my Oprah day job and everything else I do is a little bit more challenging. So So let's talk a little bit about that. You Mm -hmm. you and I both have careers that are more like the um, veggie plate at Luby's Mm -hmm. where it's like made up of a variety of side hustles. So Mm -hmm. part of what you do is work for the foundation. Mm -hmm. But you also do several other projects. some of which are depressing, some yeah. of which are wonderful. Yeah. Talk about those. Um, so I guess since I've started working with you in 2011 here in Austin with with um, the refugee community, that's been kind of a weird side hustle. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just kind of more me making myself available to people in the refugee community that might need help, might need an introduction, might need a dr- you know, being driven to a hospital or mm-hmm. to a government office. Um, I've enrolled kids in school. I've helped people study for the U.S. citizenship test. I would ace it, by the way. Really great at <laughs> you were totally right. Um, and so just kind of things like that, like really just they've become dear friends. Like mm-hmm. I go to their house for tea or for a meal. Um, always, They're always so hospitable to me. And so um, I just kind of, you know, I'm around if they have a question, um, if they need a resume, if they need a job application. Um, and so it's just kind of that really practical stuff that makes me feel really good mm-hmm. um, about what I've contributed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so and I think that's important. I mean, it keeps you going back and giving and wanting to, to kind of carve out time in your day. Um, people have said on the pod too, like just really that feeling of joy. Mm-hmm. And so it's definitely selfish. I think um, there's that quote from, I think it's an Australian Aboriginal community that's like your liberation is bound, you know, don't mm-hmm. don't come to save me, come because your liberation is bound up mm-hmm. in mine. Um, I, I butchered that. But um, but that's really truly how I feel. Yeah. Like I'm there because I'm looking for something about myself. Like I really want to be useful and helpful and make sure that the work being done for people is ethical, is responsible, and is sustainable. And so if I can come and make sure – part of it too is I think just defending <laughs> I, – I take on this role and I, I guess maybe I, I don't need to all the time of like just kind of defending them about some of just the crappy things about mm-hmm. the system. Um, I mean, we've dealt with – you and I have exploitive landlords mm-hmm. um, with – I mean you, you had a whole incident of like a pedophile mm-hmm. preying on a refugee community. And so I think sometimes – Traffickers. Um yeah, just making sure that they don't—they're not quite as vulnerable mm-hmm. when when they arrive, or even in the in the ensuing years, mm-hmm. um, and that they kind of just know the things that we know that we take mm-hmm. for granted about being an American, like not letting your kids play outside, because that's something that families are able to do, um, maybe in a community if they've you know lived in a camp in Thailand or something like that. But just making them aware of certain yeah. things that we kind of take for granted as as Americans or people who grew up here. So yeah, which is kind of a bum job because we wish that. It could always be just as idealistic as everybody wants it to be. Yeah. You um, Okay, so talk a little bit about splitting your time between Thailand and Texas because yeah. I want you to talk a little bit about the difference between working with refugees who have gone through the resettlement program and have really gotten this, like, golden ticket of being here in the United States versus refugees who are often seeking asylum right. in Thailand, which are really different situations. Um, so I moved to I moved back to Thailand. I've lived in Thailand on and off for a decade now. I moved back to Thailand probably 2015, 2016. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think my original intent was just to kind of see the entire refugee resettlement mm-hmm. process. I, of course, thought that I was going to inform everybody and be like, you guys could be doing this a lot better because mm-hmm. when they get here, you know, there's some confusion. Mm-hmm. I'm going to help you sort this out. Um, so I went to Thailand, just kind of started getting involved in, in different things. And I really – I just kind of got blown back on my heels by just like how incredibly challenging mm-hmm. um, psychologically, spiritually, emotionally that process is. Mm-hmm. Um 
And so in the process of just kind of helping people, I realized in, Th- in, in Thailand specifically, refugees get detained um, because they didn't sign the refugee convention. Mm-hmm. So they don't agree to give um, like, a, like a base level of safety or asylum mm-hmm. to people while they're waiting to see if they get resettled. Will you um, talk just for one second about what the refugee convention is? Just make sure... Um, 1951, um, Refugee Convention um, provided that refugees, if they had a credible fear, oh gosh, they're five, they're five different, they're five different things. Yeah, they're going to show that they're persecuted, and um, so signing countries have to agree to recognize these five forms of persecution and. And, if and provide them with basic that. human right. rights. And right. so Thailand didn't um, sign on to that. Mm-hmm. And so if you are a refugee and you're trying to just exist in Thailand, UNHCR has said that you have a credible threat on mm-hmm. your life. They still um, choose to put people in detention. Mm-hmm. And so I ended up spending a lot of time um, visiting people in detention. Um, when I was in Thailand, too, was when the, the Muslim ban started here in the States, too. So I was working with a Somali woman who had been in jail, and she had her ticket to the States. Mm-hmm. She had her ticket. She was leaving that next week. And then... Um, the ban one is in place. And so she had to spend another few weeks mm-hmm. in jail. And it was just heartbreaking. I just remember sitting on my side of the fence, like you're separated by fences, and just kind of crying with her because mm-hmm. we didn't know she was going to be in jail happen. forever yeah. for the rest of her life or um, for the future. And fortunately, um, the courts halted that and she was able to get out mm-hmm. one night um, pretty quickly. They just kind of pushed her through the system. Um, but that work, is, it was really hard. I mean, mm-hmm. like, it wasn't um, I feel like my my work here in Austin with refugees was more kind of like building on something. I could pro- I could basically promise them like if you do this, then this will happen. Mm-hmm. If you work hard, so many of my refugee friends um, now already like own homes mm-hmm. in in Austin and in Maynard um, are doing really well. Their kids are doing well. Their kids are going to school um, to university. Um, so I pretty much can guarantee you what's going to happen. But working with refugees who are awaiting resettlement or who are awaiting refugee status is just a whole nother thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think maybe as part of that, I started to seek out other opportunities, other jobs, because it just kind of got overwhelming. Um, just the, the mental illness that, mm-hmm. that, that, that is exacerbated by that process mm-hmm. or the things that happen to people um, as they wait, as they're unsafe, as they're you know trying not to go to jail. Um, kids are born without any sort of documentation. Um, police, you know, they pay bribes. They, you know, they're just very, very vulnerable to, to all kinds of different systems. So um, I started... I started kind of focusing a little bit of my time wanting to help, but also realizing that I needed help. I needed to help myself mm-hmm. <laughs> to be able to help people. And I needed to have more income to be able to give them what a lot of them really needed, which was financial support. Mm-hmm. Um, so I started working with an anti-trafficking organization. I did a rebrand um, project for them and kind of do their messaging and stuff. I've been traveling with a friend and, and telling stories for um, nonprofits all around the world for a long time. And so um, it's an, it's another one of my side hustles. So now, yeah, um, what's your, you're actually a consultant. You're yeah. Doing this as con- yeah. yeah. Um, so I'm like a messaging, branding and storytelling consultant mm-hmm. for organizations because I think that's all born out of this idea that I have have friends who I really want to see their stories told really well. Mm-hmm. And I think because of um, being born in the States and being exposed to so much media and social media about who the other is or Mm -hmm. who the people are that we're helping, I think I really just kind of wanted to level that playing field and make sure that the people telling the stories were um, the people themselves Mm -hmm. and that organizations that are um, trying to help a community to make sure that they're telling messages that are responsible and that are ethical um, and that really keep the whole person in mind and keep the future of that person in mind. Because so many times in marketing, we kind of freeze somebody in time mm-hmm. and we're like, they're always vulnerable or they're always a refugee. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know of a, I know of a girl who kind of became a poster child for an organization um, 
as a as a vulnerable student, an mm-hmm. at risk student who is almost trafficked, and um, she now as an as a young woman, as an adult, and she says, "I don't want to be that person right. anymore." Right. You know, like you've kind of used me as that, and so I've had a lot of examples of friends that even willingly and excitedly mm-hmm. would show up to 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 shoot a campaign, to shoot a marketing campaign for for a nonprofit, and then afterwards they really regretted it because mm-hmm. they didn't. They didn't quite um, foresee how that was going to kind of freeze them in time yeah. and their most vulnerable moment. Yeah. Um, and so I kind of try to bring that to bear with to organizations. And I do think that people are really open to it. Like I have a client recently, um, and I think that it's just when you are trying to get donor dollars, when mm-hmm. you're trying to convey a message, I think the easiest thing to do is to say this person is needy, I'm helping them, mm-hmm. or you're helping them, to kind of create that imbalance um, it's easy for people to understand, but I think that's also just super dangerous because yeah. I mean I, I know the mark. I mean I'm I'm not a marketer. Um, I think because I think marketing would really want to exacerbate right. that difference and really want to continue and kind of dig at that and be like you know you're the hero you're the savior. Um, but so many times that's just not how it it operates. And I think too donors end up getting a little bit burned because they were like well you told me that things were going to change or be mm-hmm. different. But a lot of times when you're dealing with extreme poverty, when you're dealing with human rights abuses, yeah. those aren't things that you can easily fix with money. Um, we need to have patient capital. We need to have creative solutions. We need to have innovative solutions. And, and sometimes you can't just sell that in a mm-hmm. simple ad campaign that says they're needy. You know, you're you're better than them or, you know, your money can save them because that's not always the case. And sometimes um, the solution is so specific to right. the circumstance, right? And that's right. what I think you – I've seen you do this with a lot of um, – I think often we come in with the blunt tools of um, these tropes of, like, the needy people need us. Mm-hmm. And instead you're you're helping organizations to really understand the strength of their own situation and how to tell their specific story and how to allow there to be complexities. Um, yeah, is that – how how do you do that? That seems like such difficult work and yet incredibly important. How do you help organizations do that work? Uh, um, in the beginning, it's really challenging because I think a lot of people at first don't want to admit that they have done anything wrong. Like, I'm yeah. here to help. You know, like, yeah. I'm here to help or to transform. Like, I'm a lot of people are sacrificing people that move overseas um, and take a job in Thailand, for instance, or are working in a in a camp or doing something like they've they've really given up a lot. But I think it's kind of more about showing them long-term investment. And maybe because I've been doing this for so long too, I can say, you know, this person might become your neighbor someday. Mm -hmm. This person might become part of your community. Do you want to be talking about them, defining them by their disease status, their, Mm -hmm. their financial status, their, um, you know, exposing their marital problems, you know, to the world. And so I'm kind of in that hybrid space between, I'm not a journalist, I'm not even a marketer. So I'm kind of in this weird space Mm -hmm. of, um, just trying to make sure that stories are told, truthfully and well, um, but also with kind of the long-term human Mm -hmm. aspect in mind. And so it takes some time with with organizations for sure, but I think they start to realize, like, why don't we just start to ask our clients or constituents? Mm -hmm. And so more and more I'll ask um, a woman if she's a survivor of trafficking, like, hey, like, what word, how do you want to talk about yourself? Mm -hmm. What word do you feel Mm -hmm. comfortable with? Like, do you like the word survivor? Sometimes women feel victimized and like, no, please call me a victim Mm -hmm. because this, I want people to know that that's how I felt. And so just kind of letting people define themselves a little bit, I think Mm -hmm. is really important. Um, It's become really important to some of my friends to to call themselves former refugees. So Mm -hmm. instead of me always being like, this is my friend, this refugee, oh my God, you know, like they don't, that's not their identity forever, right? Like they just want to get on with their life. Like Mm -hmm. they want to um, take their kids to soccer or, you know, like just kind of become... Um, some some people want to, you know, 
assimilate immediately and become right. an American and be seen as that and be accepted as that. Other people don't, and they kind yeah. of hold on to their identity from their former country. Um, but people get to choose, yeah. you know, and so I think that's really helped me learn a lot too, just about people and yeah. how everybody's so so different. And some people are gonna gonna come and and you know want to be in that circumstance or want to be defined by that for a long time. And some mm-hmm. people want to get away from it as quickly as they can. And I think I've had the benefit of choosing um, how I want to be defined by things, right. by circumstances. And so I, that's like the least I can do for other people. Right. So, And you've seen most of, it seems that most of the people that you work with, um, the organizations that you work with, like this is what they want to do anyway. They kind mm-hmm. of get stuck in the rut of this is how we're supposed to do this thing. And yeah. I think it seems really refreshing from the stories you've told me to have someone come in and be like, you already know these people. You mm-hmm. already have these relationships. How can we leverage that in order to tell the story in a better way that centers them in the way that they want to center those people, right? right. Um, so can people hire you? How does that how <laughs> yes. does that work? Like what do um, you Yeah. So I'm available for hire <laughs> most days um for storytelling strategy and um philanthropic advising. Mm-hmm. So on my website, constancedykusen.com, it's super easy to spell, but we'll have a link in the <laughs> show notes, I'm sure. Um, and so, yeah, but um, I'm definitely open to working with organizations. I love working with creatives and putting mm-hmm. stories together. That's what this podcast has been about. Mm-hmm. That's what Great Society is about is um, me just sitting down with people that I have an affinity for. Like I really do feel like people focusing on um, income inequality, racial injustice, um, human rights issues. Like I, when I meet, when I met yeah. you that day at the fish pond, I was just like, this is somebody I have an affinity with and I yeah. can talk to. And so this whole, um, podcast has been about just getting to spend intentional time with people, um, who are doing that work and kind of celebrating them and learning from them. And I have, it's been really good. So I'm going to embarrass you and make a plug real quick, Okay, but you are one of the most, um, the, the most insightful people when it comes to understanding projects on the ground. And Mm -hmm. I think sometimes it's hard when you say consultant, it's hard for people to really grasp what it is exactly that you do. But you and I have produced movies together. Mm -hmm. We have, or films, I guess, documentaries. We have um, done photo shoots. We have done nonprofit work. We have done writing. I mean, there have just been like so many random things in which you're one of the very first people I call mm-hmm. and say, I really need your expertise. And part of that is because you are really good at going in and understanding a system or a village or a group of people and then figuring out a solution that's very specific to that situation. Mm-hmm. And people aren't always able to to get that. So if there's anyone listening to this who feels like <laughs> – this is me saying this plug is your friend – but. Um, feels like they're looking for something like that. I feel like you you really bring a lot of gifts to this that I Thanks. think you're often very um, reticent to share. And Thanks. so I just wanted to make that plug as your friend. Thank you. Right. Um, so do you have like one good wacky traveling overseas stories? Because you have been in so many places. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think before I tell the story, I think that that's kind of part of it is I've always I've moved like 11 times in the last 10 years. So mm-hmm. I'm always kind of on the go. And so kind of the disadvantage to that is not always being plugged in long term to a community. Yeah. But part of the advantage of that is I've gotten to compare so many different projects side by side. Right, and I've right. gotten to go to South Africa, Nicaragua, Rwanda, Kenya, you know, like all these amazing places. Um, so after a while, you start to know like, this is going to work. Like yeah. This is going to work. I believe in this. Or I, I really see there's, there's commonalities between organizations that are really exciting hmm. and that are really going to grow. Um, and so I think that that's why I've been able to do that is just, um, 
that ability to just kind of stack them up and look next to each other. Um, but then also on the road, yes, lots of things <laughs> happen. Um, one time my car got hijacked by a monkey, a baboon, I guess, <laughs> in South Africa. That was great. Um, my friend and I were on the beach taking pictures and I turn around and I was like, hey, you, you rolled up the windows, right? And he was like, what? And we turn around and a baboon had jumped in our car um, and was like just banging around in there in my rental car that I had put on my work credit card and I was just horrified. <laughs> um, and so we it took us probably 30 minutes to just bang on things like the, the monkey went through my baboon sorry they're different um went through my bag my husband's brand new ipad was like banging it on my seat um chewed my gum ate my ibuprofen um i just i didn't know if it was gonna pass out i was like is ibuprofen good for the bad i don't know and so and halfway through the worst part was this literally happened a tour bus of of chinese tourists came by with like chinese lettering on the thing and they all started taking pictures of me trying trying to get get the baboon out of my car (laughs) and it started raining so it was just like the most ridiculous viral somewhere yeah yeah yeah. i'm big in china um (laughs) but it was just the most ridiculous thing ever yeah Um, that's one of the fun ones i've never heard that story yeah that's a good one Um, that's one of my that's one of my faves for for young people too to be able to tell that story Um, i like to tell it to the youths yeah to the youths that's my story about holly um but yeah i mean just so many i don't know just being on the road a lot um so many great things happen so much of it though was just like being in airports or being in airplanes or um things not working out or breaking down getting stuck you know so a lot of that stuff is not fun or exciting to what do you how can you tell that an organization is gonna work well i thought that was really interesting like what what gives it away um i think it's that combination of just you can kind of sense respect Mm -hmm. like if if the constituents kind of you know like the the person who has the least amount of power and the person who has the most amount of power are interacting really well or Mm -hmm. they know each other's names if i get to the field and the boss or the the funder or the donor or the whoever is in the field and doesn't know anybody's names, that's a huge red flag to mm-hmm. me, that they don't actually know the names of the people they're trying to help. They don't mm-hmm. have relationships. Um, and anywhere, anytime there's like that power imbalance that just is exacerbated in the way that the programs are run, um, if people ever kind of have to, to grovel for services mm-hmm. or if they ever have to jump through any hoops mm-hmm. to just prove that they're human, prove mm-hmm. that they deserve dignity, um, believe it or not, that happens a lot. I mean, yeah, like you see um, a lot of projects just kind of inherently set up. It's like, I'm coming to save you. I'm coming to to bring you something that you need. And um, that's just not always – I just kind of know from the beginning. I'm like, thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah. And you just kind of back up slowly and you leave. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. Um, but, I mean, but also, too, those are sometimes where you can find the most amount of transformation. Those mm. are the organizations that sometimes by introducing just little or seeding little ideas – um, and trying to show them that, hey, have you ever thought about this? Have you ever thought about hiring people that maybe are from this community or speak the language or know this, you know? And a lot of times I think people just – it hasn't con- um, occurred to them because we kind of have these really basic um, fundamental ideas about American charity or American yeah. exceptionalism that we carry with us that we don't even realize. And so over the years um, – I think as I've been humiliated on the road, just like, you know, all these things happen to you um, and you just rely on other people. Yeah. Like I've been in hospitals in other yeah. countries. I've done other things and people are always so kind and so hospitable mm-hmm. to me. And so I really seek to do that for people um, when I can. So, yeah, that's good. How yeah. do you find success in your work? Um, I think I think whether or not if I'm in kind of a super wealthy um, group of people or in a really poor group of people, I think the thing that that stands out to me is always just everybody just wants the ability to choose. Hmm. Everybody just wants that, um, like, 
working for the Jory family, I realized like I know that they're successful because they wear whatever they want wherever mm-hmm. they go. And that mm-hmm. to me is like the dream is just to be able to wear <laughs> jeans every day for the rest of my life. Um, whereas if I'm in a refugee community or if yeah. I'm working with a woman, all they really want is the ability to choose where their kids go to school. Yeah. Um, sometimes they want to choose a really great car or a really great TV because that's going to help them to spend yeah. time as a family or to be feel safe as a family. So I think for me, I feel most successful when um, even though I'm, I'm sometimes juggling a lot, um, it's I feel most successful when I have the ability to choose projects, when I have the ability to choose to spend time with my family mm-hmm. um, or to go on the road or to go mm-hmm. somewhere exciting or fun or new. Um, so I think to me success is really just having that, having a little bit of control over your life, getting to choose what mm-hmm. you want to do. I think that's what I'm what I'm looking for and what I want to see for um, for friends and, and for people that might not have that. So mm-hmm. Good. All right. Thanks. Thanks for letting me interview you. Yeah, thanks so much. And so I want to ask you, how do you define success for you, for yourself, for your book, for your projects, for the small businesses that you and your husband are always seeming to start? How do you define success for yourself? I feel feel like when others are flourishing, I'm someone who is often aware of – how other people perceive my work and always thinking about, I come from academia, so I'm always thinking about like how the audience receives it or is this the most effective way to do this or could there be better Mm -hmm. phrases? And really at the end of the day, I define success by, am I telling the stories of the women whose stories I'm telling, usually women, but often men Mm -hmm. in a way that they're pleased with? Are they being honored? Do they feel agency within that? Do they feel like they've had an opportunity to kind of use me as a megaphone to tell the world what's happening to them? And so if other people, other people can come at this in whatever way they want to, if they, at the end of the day, have something that that feels really um, congruent with their experiences, then that feels like success to me. Thanks. Yeah. I like that. That's kind of similar to mine, and that's why I like you. That's, that's why, why I like you, too. Must be why we're friends. Um, exactly. But yeah. thanks so much for being here today, yeah, and thanks thank for asking you. me questions. I appreciate it. It was a nice little change of pace. Thanks. So, thank you. Thanks, everybody. Thanks so much to Jessica Godot for being today's host. Her book, The Last Border, will be out in spring of 2020. To see more of my work, go to ConstanceDiekusen.com. Don't worry, we'll put a link in the show notes. The Great Society team includes me, Constance Dykusen, producer Mariah Gossett, and audio engineer Jake Wallace. Thank you to everyone at Founding Media for your support. If you're enjoying these conversations, please rate and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people to find the show. Thanks for listening.